Hello and welcome to the Demystifying Media podcast. I'm Damien Radcliffe, the Carolyn S. Chambers Professor of Journalism at the University of Oregon. And today we're going to be talking about the science of science communication and more with my special guest, Dr. Kathleen Hall Jameson. Dr. Jameson is the Elizabeth Ware Packard Professor of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication. She's the Walter and Leonore Director of the University's Public Policy Center and Program Director of the Annenberg Retreat at Sunnylands. Professor Jameson has authored or co-authored 16 books, most recently Cyber War, How Russian Hackers and Trolls Helped Elect a President, which won the 2019 R.R. Hawkins Award from the Association of American Publishers. In 2020, the National Academy of Sciences announced that Professor Jameson would receive its most prestigious award, the Public Welfare Medal, for her nonpartisan crusade to ensure the integrity of facts in public discourse and development of the science of scientific communication to promote public understanding of complex issues. Previous recipients of this award include Alan Alder, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and Bill and Melinda Gates. Dr. Jameson's research areas include political communication, rhetorical theory and criticism, studies of various forms of campaign communication, and the discourse of the presidency. Dr. Jameson, thank you very much for joining us today. Good to be with you. So let's start, if we may, with the coronavirus and the uh, COVID pandemic. Um, this evening, you're joining us for a virtual lecture to talk about the challenges of communicating about COVID-19 as part of the annual Johnson Lecture Series. Could you perhaps give us some insight into a few of the key ideas and topics that you'll be exploring this evening? The notion underlying the speech is that we are in an unusual moment in which a great deal of our science is emerging. It's so we, we, we don't have the sense of a whole body of work that we are synthesizing, which we do in some areas of inquiry, uh, but rather we've had a, a rush to try to find out how, how can we treat, you know, what, what, are the, what are the available ways, ways to prevent, how will, what will science tell us about whether they prevent, and then ultimately, how will a vaccine work? Will a vaccine work? Is it effective? And in the process, we've put journalism in an extraordinarily difficult position because uh, the rush of knowledge that has come into play is astonishing. Um, and it's come in in all the forms that knowledge typically does. Typically, you have small observational studies, you have small descriptive studies, you know, you might have you know, an experiment, people begin to do surveys very quickly. And but there's ordinarily a slow process in which one or two or three studies make it into the best journals after careful peer review. Um, and they are, they are very carefully treated. Press releases are put out that are carefully vetted. Sometimes there's some hyping of the science, but it's a slow process. And a journalist will typically have an embargo on things in a major media outlet, have a chance to carefully look at it, to call some more experts, to find out, well, what do you think of this? And as a result, to write a careful story about something which is usually cast as a discovery. It's journalism that's thoughtful, it's nuanced, there's nothing rushed about it. And you might have a couple of nice pictures, particularly if you've got astronomy at issue. Uh, you might have some diagrams that people might take time to put together. Um, not so when studies are emerging very quickly in the form of preprints. They're appearing in journals that people have never heard of, but they might be specialty journals. They might be perfectly reputable journals. Uh, studies coming from all over the globe. We're not just looking at material coming through what, what was usually the focus of the U.S. media, uh, which is things that at least have a U.S. national someplace in the lead authorship chain. And in that process, we have a politicized environment in which political leaders in the person of Donald Trump began to, to advocate for therapeutics that had not yet been proven. So now the journalists are in the position of having to cover the fact of the emerging science, a lot of science, some of it conflicting, as is often the case with early science. Little studies that said hydroxychloroquine works, other studies that said, no, it really doesn't work. Different kinds of studies. And in that environment, the president of the United States says, what have you got to lose? Now, it's been used for malaria, it's been used for lupus, and you know it may be a game changer. And he begins to tell us that doctors are calling him, telling him they're using it, it's a wonder drug for their patients. Into that environment, and now the science is becoming polarized because a political figure is beginning to step apart from the knowledge. The knowledge at that point says, we don't know whether it works or not for COVID. And you know, when in doubt, 
Doctors can make off-label off use of it. It's not that they can't make off-label use of it. But the question is, is that ill-advised or not? And enter the conservative media universe in which suddenly major Fox News hosts before Donald Trump began touting hydroxychloroquine were touting hydroxychloroquine. Now we're beginning to get the signal that perhaps there's some political reason for us to be interested in hydroxychloroquine, not simply whether or not it's got the preventive effects that are being alleged. And people are beginning to either decide they like it or don't, it's good or not, they would use it or not based on their political affiliation and based on their media consumption. Because if you watch mainstream news, that is ABC, NBC, CBS, you read the New York Times, you read the Wall Street Journal, what you'll hear is, the scientists don't know whether it works or not. Mainstream news did what it's supposed to do. It reported the state of the scientific knowledge. No failure there. What you're going to hear among opinion talk hosts in conservative media channels is it's a game changer. They're not, everybody else isn't coming on board saying this because the deep state doesn't want this to work. It's cheaper than remdesivir. So there's a financial advantage. And so you begin to see those people who are, who are basically concerned about how science comes to know in an environment because they just don't trust the pharmaceutical industry. They don't trust government. They don't necessarily trust government scientists, although they do in non-politicized domains. They're now hearing cues that say, if I'm in a conservative media universe and I believe Donald Trump, I should be using it and they are being deceived by those who are saying the evidence is out because they're actually citing scientific studies. Well, there are scientific studies. We're at the beginning of science. Science is emergent. So now what we have is a perfect storm in which we are able to ask if the journalistic community is going to protect us at this point, what does it need to tell us as individuals, as humans, including doctors who are watching news just like everybody else? And what journalism didn't have to the extent that it needed was the vocabulary. The vocabulary needed to say there's a scientific way of knowing. Observational studies are a way of knowing, but it's an early way of knowing. Controlled studies are better. Placebo-controlled studies are better. Randomized clinical controlled studies that are placebo-controlled are better. Double-blind studies are better. Randomized placebo-controlled double-blind studies are the best. And we don't have them yet. So when journalists are interviewing people who are alleging that they have the definitive article, they don't have the vocabulary to say to the public, not that this is illegitimate, it's maybe a perfectly legitimate person, also, although some of them were not, but rather science doesn't know from this what ordinarily you would want to know before you would make a large recommendation that someone ought to take the drug. And so the point of the lecture is to say, we, we, you should use this as a case study to say, Whenever emergent science is at issue, there are some things that we want journalists to know how to do. Some things we want everybody who communicates in a science environment to know how to do to help people understand that there are potential insights and pieces of evidence in all of this preliminary work. But there's a reason we hold off before we use something at large scale outside very controlled settings like hospitals in which they're studying things. Um, and, and as a result, we should wait. So the first point of the speech is to say, looking ahead, we need to, to determine how we communicate that those standards exist, what they are, and create a vocabulary that journalists can use that will make those standards accessible to a public, while also respecting the fact that there is some knowledge in these intermediate stages. It just isn't necessarily what you need at the back end to make really reliable inferences. And the reason I address Clerkin is a good case study is because the early studies suggested that it might have some effects, they, but it's very, very preliminary data from which you could not draw large inferences. Once we got the gold standard studies, the emergency use authorization for it is withdrawn because it has no effect. Once you get all the controls in place, the effect isn't there, and there are potentially some problematic side effects. And there's one other little tiny caution that sits there. You wouldn't want to be taking it even if it had no problematic side effects for anyone, if it foreclosed use of something else that was beneficial. And one of the things the FDA revocation of the emergency use authorization points to is you shouldn't use it with remdesivir. And remdesivir is one of the treatments that has shown small, 
not large, small effects in that it reduces the number of days of hospitalization required on average for COVID patients. So the those who might have been on hydroxychloroquine who were hospitalized might not have been able to give be given a drug that could have had real benefit, not huge benefit, but real benefit. And that could have been problematic for them as well. And in the process of pushing hydroxychloroquine out to people who did not need it and would not be benefited by it, we created a hydroxychloroquine shortage for people who actually needed it because the drug does work for some conditions and those people needed their drug in order to have those conditions addressed. So first lesson is we have to figure out what those standards are as we translate them to the public, put it into clear English, and as a result, have all of our journalists ready the next time emergent science is at issue to help us make sense of it. So there aren't any villains here. There's some people who didn't really understand emergent science. And our journalistic gatekeepers tried, but didn't do as well as they could have had we done a better job arming them. That the second point of the lecture is that we now exist in a world in which there is a high level of distrust of experts among large segments of the population, large segments of the population that trust themselves over experts. And that's problematic when you need someone like an Anthony Fauci to digest what we know and to be trusted. He still is highly trusted, but the attacks on him in conservative media were all but relentless. And if we don't protect those people who are the custodians of knowledge, the people who have the expertise and can communicate it to us well, then we've taken one more piece out of our arsenal to protect the public. And that's highly problematic. And we need to develop a system that builds the credibility by establishing the actual expertise and doesn't simply assume that because we call him Dr. Fauci, everybody knows you should respect him. And journalists largely didn't do that. They largely said, Oh, because they all know who he is, Dr. Fauci. Well, at the point at which the parts of the public are hearing, no, he's a con artist. No, he doesn't treat patients. No, he doesn't know what he's talking about. No, he's been wrong about all sorts of things. You have to have a credibility establishment structure in order to make sure that he is able to continue to perform that role. And that's the second lesson of the speech. There's a huge amount to to unpack there, um, I mean, not least just to go to your kind of end point, some of the early false equivalency that we saw when you had somebody like Dr. Phil appearing on certain cable networks and talking about this and just the very fact that he has, uh, that he's a doctor um, was seen as a basis for credibility and kind of talking about issues that were very much outside of, of his domain. And as you say, there is this kind of perfect storm of so many different elements coming together. Journalists not having the vocabulary to, to understand that how to, how, or how to communicate about early science. Um, I'm also curious about whether scientists themselves have needed to communicate and do things do things differently because they're used to working with the media, as you say, in, in, a, in a very kind of more controlled environment where results are much more certain because there's been much more testing um, and where perhaps there isn't the same clamor for solutions as, the, as we're seeing now. And, you know, I, I heard a really interesting talk on BBC Radio 4 a few weeks ago where we had a number of, of British medical practitioners and scientists saying that actually they were communicating differently with the media now to 12 months ago because they feel they've been burned a little bit by some of what, what's happened over the last time, nine to 10 months. Yeah, but the, the first thing before anybody moves into media, they need to recognize that we are not in a world anymore in which your expertise will be presumed. We now need to make the assumption that as communicators, we need to establish our expertise as part of communicating the science. And so you would like, as a journalist introduces the scientist, for the journalist to provide a little background. You know, this person you know, has conducted research in this area for this number of years. You know, this person has served as a reviewer in a process that has evaluated this, et cetera. So a little bit of time so that we're not saying one person called doctor is the equivalent of another person called doctor. So if you did that about everyone, you would say about Dr. Phil, things that would say, oh, this is not a doctor who is certified to do X. One of the pieces I'll show in the lecture tonight is a person who carries the title doctor. He is a doctor of economics. Now, 
can he be called doctor? Well, he has a PhD, technically, yes, but we're in a health domain. So at the point at which you credential him by calling him doctor, people are reasonably going to assume it's a health domain. He must be at least an MD. He is not. And he's talking as if he is an expert about the science when he's actually an expert in trade economics. So a first heuristic that we need to build into our understanding as we go into media to talk is that we need to remember what our own areas of expertise are that'll keep us inside the boxes in which we're, we're competent to talk. But secondly, to indicate and encourage the people who are introducing us to indicate what are the credentials we bring to the discussion. So you won't get the false equivalency if, the, if there's a credit, and that means you put your credentials under Dr. Oz and Dr. Phil and all of those other people who are putting the name doctor up there. So when you, when you get Dr. Atlas, you find out that this is not an epidemiologist. This is not an infectious disease specialist. The person still is carrying the title of doctor. A Dr. Fauci isn't a Dr. Atlas. So there are some conventions that we need to build in now because we can't assume that people will grant expertise and we can't assume there won't be people who will have the illusion of expertise that are treated as if they're equivalent of those who have the actual expertise in a news environment unless we build that set of assumptions in. Obviously, we can also argue that journalists need to behave more responsibly in terms of not giving a platform to people who aren't specialists, who don't have the kind of credentials that you have outlined so that their views are not given uh, equivalency or, or potentially kind of misrepresenting where the science is at to, to audiences. You know, and I'm, I'm going to show a clip tonight, which, which in, in occurs in Fox News, in which a person on screen is introduced as if they authored a study and as if they were a doctor the person is not a doctor and did not author the study. So we also have to call out inaccurate journalism that invites false inference about the expertise of the person. So we can bracket off to say there is such a thing as just simply bad journalism, and that falls into that category. Then we have challenging journalism, journalism in, the, in which we're in new space now because of emerging science and because we can't assume expertise anymore. And we can't assume that the credential itself that's called the doctor or is called scientist necessarily indicates the expertise. The, we had any number of instances in which people, because they were physicians, were granted the stature of scientists who'd studied an area extensively as if the fact of being a physician was the equivalent of. And that's the next thing we need to think about. It is, how do you help the public understand that doctors are wonderful people? They know a great deal. Doctors are in general expert, to expert in some area that they practice in. And then there are some who are generalists, but they, in general, if they're simply identified as a doctor and they're talking from the, the perspective of a physician are not people who have systematically studied something, which means in your standard of where the evidence resides on the chain of moving evidence to proof, they're very, very early in the stage. They're engaging what amounts to a form of observational research with populations that are convenient samples and hence by definition atypical. Is there a further issue here as well about the nuance? I mean, you've given some, some examples of, of some of the nuances um, in this space, but that also our attention spans as audiences uh, has been declining consistently for some period of, of time. And this is a complex space and one that's fast changing and fast emerging. Does that also add to this perfect storm that, that audiences are perhaps not as news literate, and we'll talk about scientific literacy in a moment uh, as well, that they're not necessarily able to make some of these discernments and not able to explore topics like this and give it, giving it the kind of depth that it deserves and the kind of breadth of, of source consumption and so forth, that we want kind of quick hits, we want to try and understand something very quickly and therefore news or perceptions of developments that often go viral or that are very easily understood tend to then become the common narrative. The, there's no question that, that we have that as a general societal problem, but the countervailing you know, impulse in the system, which, which is powerful, is that when a topic is salient, people increase the likelihood that they will sustain attention. So to the extent that you're anxious about COVID and you're engaging in a form of information seeking, a reverse may actually happen. You may pay extended attention to someone who isn't qualified 
to provide you with information. And out of that extended attention, have real confidence that you are now knowledgeable. You would almost wish when you're dealing with people trafficking information that it were true that they had very short attention spans for audiences because then they have less total exposure. An amount of, of exposure increases the likelihood of perceived accuracy. So familiarity increases perceived accuracy. But there's another, another fundamental that is happening that's a culture change. We've moved now in this era in which we don't have traditional granting of expertise of the people who are the usual, I call custodians of, of knowledge. That is, they, they know how to synthesize what is known. They participated in the development of what is known. They are on the cutting edge. And as a result, if they can communicate, well, they can communicate. We've moved from that to trusting a person whom we trust on some grounds to provide us with evidence on all grounds. So why, if you are a Trump supporter, would you listen to Donald Trump on medicine? I mean, you know, assume for the moment that you think of him as you are president. You agree with him on his policies. You like the idea of building a wall. You are pro-life. I mean, building all of the assumptions. You want conservative justice on the Supreme Court. Granting all of that, why would you listen to him on medicine? So, but we now are moving into a culture in which once we grant the trustworthiness of somebody for some reason, we use it as a heuristic and we trust them on a lot of other things because we've lost the ability to distinguish the expert from the non-expert by domain. And journalism feeds some of this by the pundit class opining on everything as if it is qualified to move across all of those domains with equal skill when in fact it is not. And some of what has happened in the news environment, in part because the way in which we've conventionalized cable coverage right now is a group of talking heads talking together under contract is the space in which the expert voice comes in and isn't identified as the CNN expert or the MSNBC expert or the ABC expert. They've got their own doctors now. So here, here is our doctor is essentially what they're saying. Well, there's a problem with that. That space used to be open to put the expert who had the best credentials to come in. Now, in this economic environment, once you've got that doctor expert on contract, I mean, that person can be very good, and many of them are. But if that closes out because of your economic model, finding the very best to bring that person in as well, you've made a mistake. And to the credit of the mainstream broadcast networks, they have supplemented their in-house medical on-contract talent with other experts now. Now they've usually put them under contract to try to keep them as their expert. Uh, but the, it, it, it was, there's, there was a shift early in the process, we didn't have it. And they were going back to some of the older journalistic model in which the goal was always to find the person who knew the most, who could certify at least quickly enough. So you wouldn't do an exhaustive search in order to get on air and get the context. And you would be listening to them. You wouldn't think you're qualified to comment on it as the reporter. But in the structure where there are five of you sitting across, looking at each other now socially distanced, across the same table, you're very likely now to have my opinion and your opinion. Oh, yes, and here's our doctor. And of course, a further challenge to add into that, to that mix is when we think about extended attention, uh, as we mentioned at, at the, just, just now, we saw that very much at the start of this crisis with news consumption levels being up, but very quickly that began to plateau and then fall as fatigue kicked in, um, which of course just reinforces the challenge that so for a lot of people, they will have consumed a lot of coronavirus news at the start of the pandemic when our knowledge was very loose and you know fast, fast evolving. Um, and so, if you think about an issue like mask wearing, for example, you know at the start that was a case where where a lot of scientists in the WHO were saying this isn't necessary. And then the science has changed. The science has changed in terms of you know a, a, a number of different different areas and topics. But if the if your immersion into this space was in the early days, presumably that is going to shape your perception as it stands now for, for a lot of people because that their, their knowledge hasn't necessarily caught up with contemporary conversations or indeed a lot of people are purposefully switching off because they're just exhausted by wall-to-wall -wall COVID coverage. Yeah. The, the, let's go back to the early statements about mask wearing because they actually have been filtered through a partisan lens in order to discredit the scientists. So the 
take on the mask wearing dialogue from those who are arguing that we, we should not trust the scientists is, they said we shouldn't wear a mask, then we, they said we should, they were wrong. If you go back and look at the statements by the Surgeon General, by the head of the CDC and by Anthony Fauci, and you read them carefully, so I mean, literally put them in a transcript and you read them carefully. What they were saying was that the healthy people, they didn't at that point know about asymptomatic transmission. Healthy people should not wear a mask. Fauci explicitly in the interview that's cited all over the web to show that he's a fool, explicitly says, however, if you've got symptoms, wearing a mask is just fine. And importantly, but we need to maintain our supply of masks for the people who need them most. They're the people who are in the hospitals. So he didn't say, no, nobody should ever wear a mask except people in hospitals. He said, if you're healthy, you shouldn't wear a mask. And if you read carefully on the Redfield statements and on the Adams statements, so CDC as well as Surgeon General, you see the same thing. They're saying, there's no reason that we have right now to think that if you're healthy, you should be wearing a mask. Save the masks for, because we had a mask shortage, save the masks for those who needed it. So there wasn't a reversal. There was a change in the amount of scientific knowledge. And what they learned, and between time one and time two, between that and the CDC's statement that we should be wearing masks, they had stronger evidence of asymptomatic transmission. So suddenly, being healthy could mean I have COVID, I just haven't shown symptoms yet, or I may ultimately have COVID, I'll, be, I'll just be asymptomatic all the way through. Meantime, I could expose you while I'm healthy. So I, the way I would recast that is to say emergent science. But the problem is, People hear scientists as making definitive statements that are going to be true for all times instead of understanding, and this is a key thing journalism needs to put in place, science is always iterative and it's always provisional. Science is always saying, now, here's what we know now. And if a scientist ever says, this is the final word, it is definitive and closed, that's bad science. So what were they saying about mask wearing? Given what we know, Healthy people don't need to wear masks. Given what we know, the masks that we have and we have short supply need to be in our hospitals because the masks obviously, obviously protect somebody or we wouldn't be putting them in the hospitals. So the idea that they were saying, no, masks don't protect you and then masks do protect you, that's not what they were saying or they wouldn't have said save them for people in the hospitals. So I want to recast the way we think about that moment because it's been used to discredit three major scientists who actually, when one reads them, carefully, literally looking at the transcripts, were saying something very different and, and for the science at the time. Their mistake was they weren't saying what we know now. A scientist should always say after everything, what we know now, what we know now, what we know now, subject to change. And they made the mistake of not doing that. But the sentences themselves have the distinction between healthy and symptomatic. And symptomatic, they're saying masks are fine. And journalists too, of course, therefore need to also include those cat those caveats around this is what we know now and perhaps also need to think about the way in which this is being framed around use of headlines uh, but also around use of social media uh, to convey this because we, there's plenty of evidence to show that a lot of people won't click through and watch a video read the full statement read the full article they look at the the, the summary that's provided in a, in a headline or in a tweet and from that think that they know what the, the, the full context. The other thing that we, we should be saying is we, we need to use our digital capacities. So the once I've got something posted, um, I've got the capacity to drive people to links. So figuring out how to create a link to everything else they could possibly need to know, getting it into a form that if they get to it, it's not so overwhelming that they're not gonna wanna stay with it is really important. We said this during the Zika outbreak, um, during Zika, we, we uh, content analyzed virtually every piece of news that was there and anything that was mainstream media. Uh, and what we found was that the digital outlets were not linking to the CDC guidelines on the bottom of their stories. So they, they, they wrote their story about what was known. It would sit there back old, in the old archives. You'd have to go find it. Their linkage structure didn't link back to it. And their linkage structure didn't link to the CDC where there's a lovely page, one page that says, this is how you prevent it. And the key thing was, you know, mosquito-borne and sexually transmitted. I mean, key things. Those are the two things people had to know. So the, we, we put out material to all the major news outlets that said, here's, here's what we found in your news outlet. They put the digital links up almost instantly. I mean, it was a no-brainer. It costs nothing. Well, we need to think about health materials 
as an asset that we have an ongoing need to access. And every time news touches a health story, there should be a link. And we've said the same thing about suicide coverage and the media are doing an excellent job of that. We helped develop the, the suicide guidelines that were disseminated by the NIH, the NIMH, the CIDC, et cetera, in 2000. And the, what we said to all the journalists then, and we continue to say yearly, we're the ones who put up the myth of, of holiday suicide increase in order to remind journalists of the guidelines. But when you're ready to story about suicide, have a help link attached to the story. And you will now see it on television and news. You'll see it in anytime there's an effective portrayal, you see it in print. This is a journalistic su success story. We need to have the same kinds of structures in place, just built into the norms of news. Whenever there's a health crisis, Zika is potentially a health crisis. This is a health crisis that we're in right now. And so every news story ought to have a link back to a clear CDC page on prevention. Does it feel then as if a lot of these processes and procedures, best practices for the uh, for COVID, were just not necessarily in place. That that what we saw with Zika, those principles didn't necessarily transfer to this to yeah. this new crisis. Yeah, and we saw the same thing when we tried to implement the visual grammar of recovery ads, critiquing ads and news, political ads and news. We developed the visual grammar to minimize the likelihood that when you you're critiquing a political ad in news you will be minimized likely that the ad will dominate and you won't hear the reporter's corrections. So, you know, you put the ad on the screen, you tip it to the side, you put that it's an ad up over it, the name of the broadcast on top of it. You stop it repeatedly as you correct and you put your corrections in print and people will hear the corrections. You play the ad full screen and they will hear the ad. They will not hear a word the reporter says. So we got this implemented, huge effort. We got this implemented. By the end of 1992, we have all the major networks using it. By 1996, they'd completely forgotten how to do it. So did we institutionalize it? No, the, the biggest people changed. It, it didn't get into the structure of the assumptions by which they worked. So we trained a whole lot of people. They then went off to do something else. They completely forgot about it. They're doing something else. They never trained the new people to do it. The failure of the Zika intervention was it didn't immediately carry over COVID. So there's clearly a lot of reinventing of the wheel going on, which must be rather frustrating. But I guess also a further consideration here is that, you know, we've seen that COVID has become so all-encompassing that uh, that journalists are covering COVID who are not necessarily specialists in yeah. science or health in a way that perhaps with smaller outbreaks um, like uh, SARS or Zika, it tended to be a smaller cohort of journalists perhaps who were reporting on that. So it would be easier to distill elements of best practice. And, there are fewer stories. and then and their knowledge base is also going to be higher too. You're, you're working with fewer generalists, perhaps. Yeah. The other thing that, that is important from a journalistic perspective is to listen to the language that you're being handed by the scientists. And sometimes the journalists have a better grasp of what the public understands than the scientists do. So you know, the idea that measles has been eliminated, and the public hears that as no measles. And the press realized that when the CDC put out the statement that measles had been eliminated in the United States, which I think was in 2000, it was a long time ago, that no, they didn't mean that. The public was mishearing it. The CDC was making a distinction between eliminate and eradicate. And you don't want people to not take the measles vaccine and have their kids not take it because they think there's no measles possible. So there's still the possibility of infection with measles. Uh, so the, the press, I, I love this because what it says is smart journalists really do hear their public and they they hear the language the public will comprehend so there's a lovely uh piece i think it was a cbs news site um which which put when this, this the announcement about it put eliminated quotation marks see so it's eliminated as a way of saying to people read our first sentence we're going to tell you there's still possibility of transmission well see so the, there are times in which the journalistic community should hear the scientists and say you don't mean that and they should have said that the minute the scientists said social distancing. Scientists didn't mean socially distancing. They meant physically distancing. Social distancing would mean you and I don't Zoom. You know, we want social contact. We just don't want physical contact. So the, the word is wrong. So I was counting on journalists to hear social distancing and to say, no, wait a minute. We're just, every time we hear that, we're going to say physically distancing. Well, they didn't. And we've now conventionalized socially distancing. And yeah, it's very it's interesting how quickly these kind of terms get adopted and just become an accepted part of our, our lexicon, even if they're 
inaccurate. I mean, in a previous lecture that you did here at UO, you talked about uh, the danger of using and that we should banish the term fake news for yeah. for exactly that that reason. Uh, but obviously, that's a term which has been very rapidly uh, adapted and um, and weaponized. Um, it's I'm also all over the scholarly literature. So scholars have legitimized it too. And precise specification is a scholarly norm. When you when you do that as a scholar, you have violated a scholarly norm. But is there a, a re, one of the reasons for that that scholars want to be read, and and uh, that having a catchy headline is is important, just as as it is for the risk of kind of clickbaity headlines in in journalism? That you know, a, a great headline that I spot on Google Scholar or in a journal is going to make me more likely to read it, and perhaps also more likely to cite it. I, I think there's something else going on. I think it is that. People who do science in a very specific area have a vocabulary that is native to the area that works when you're talking to people in the area. They don't hear the language as if they are a member of the lay public. And a journalist is more likely to do that. So the, I mean, one of the, the arguments I have been trying to make in the scientific community is as you are moving a discovery forward, one stage of your process is encapsulating it in language that is faithful to the science. Because if it isn't faithful to the science, the public is going to misunderstand it. And that happens very early. We saw it with genetically modified organisms. That's language that was handed by the scientists into the community. Genetically modified organisms is a nightmare concept. It, it, it virtually is meaningless. If you actually labeled everything that was a genetically modified organism in the in grocery store aisle, you would label everything including everything that's been hybridized, including things that you know, have, have, have gone through you know, chemical mutation processes, none of which are meant by the people who are arguing about genetically modified organisms. And here's the irony, you'd have to label the consumer because we're a genetically modified organism. We are the beneficiaries of horizontal gene transfer. It's part of the way we, we got our immune system ancestrally. So that it, was, it was inappropriately vague, but they all knew what they were talking about. And so we have the irony that when the federal legislation was moved in order to harmonize the difference across the states, because everybody was putting in different labeling requirements, and that made no sense for interstate commerce, the congressional legislation actually says, by genetically modified organisms, we don't mean genetically modified organisms, we mean, and then they had to specify an alternative definition. Well, the fault there wasn't the advocates. The advocates didn't come up with that. It was the scientific community. And so the We've, we've got to, as the language starts to, to be, be, you know, capsulize the science, we've got to make sure that it's faithful to the science and it's not going to be misheard. And, and when it's misheard, we get things wrong that can be consequential. So you can polarize things you didn't have to polarize. I mean, a, a mitochondrial transfer is, is one of those areas, a nuclear spindle transfer, um, which is a process by which you protect um, a ultimately a, a child from getting a disease that comes through the mitochondria by substituting out the nucleus of the egg. And the, the, that comes through the, the scientific literature called nuclear spindle transfer. Some reporter says, oh, that involves three people because you've got a donor woman, you've got the woman who's, who's getting the, trans, the transfer process because her mitochondria were bad, and then you've got the male. So two women and male. So some journalists decide, oh, it's a three-parent baby. Well, you know, you start calling this three-parent baby, and you're inviting all sorts of concerns among conservatives who are worried about, you know, the traditional family that is absolutely needless. So the, there are sometimes that journalists trying to make it accessible inadvertently create polarizations. Sometimes the scientists just don't capsulize correctly. I mean, the irony is Einstein got it wrong. The theory of relativity isn't about relativity. What is, what is it about? I'm well, showing my ignorance. It, it assumes an absolute. It assumes the speed of light is an absolute. Right. So let's talk about, about solutions then, um, because obviously this is, as we've talked about, this is a very complex landscape. I'd love to know um, what we can do. Uh, you've talked on some of the kind of, a little bit about some of the roles that journalists can play as an intermediary um, for the public and scientists, but also in terms of some of the way that which they represent stories. Um, what else would you like to see journalists doing that perhaps they are, are, are not uh, or examples of, of journalists who are doing good things that you'd like to see become more uh, widespread? The, the challenge for broadcast journalists is different than the challenge and for cable journalists is different than the challenge for print journalists. 
because they will in real time hear someone saying something that's incorrect. And there's a problem with politics too. The question is, when do you correct when a politician says something that's incorrect? Um, and it's a problem in presidential debates, et cetera. Put the political stuff aside. Just let's say that if our job is to make sure that the science is accurately communicated when it's consequential. If you get it wrong, it's dangerous. You, know, you, you could actually be harmed or you could potentially harm others. But what it means is journalists who are trained as generalists, um, I mean, good journalists are well-trained across the liberal arts. They've got some science background, but they're generalists. Um, and they have to be. I mean, they're across you know, an hour. They're interviewing all, all sorts of people in all sorts of spaces. We have to figure out how when we get consequential science that is being distorted very quickly, we get those people who are on air, at least on the outlets that have large audiences, up to speed enough on the consequential deceptions. Not every little silly thing that's gotten wrong that doesn't matter, because it doesn't matter. But things that, that are consequential, such as you know, the, whether the vaccine, taking the flu vaccine can cause COVID. Now, if somebody says on air, the flu vaccine causes COVID, you have to have the journalist on air know that that is not true. And the journalist has to say, you know, we need to turn to medical experts, X. I don't believe that there's any evidence for that. I mean, if, if, the, if, if the journalist can't say that's not true, at least the journalist ought to mark it off as possibly false. And we have to have an early warning alert system to journalists who are gonna confront this in real time on three or four things that are really damaging if you believe them. So the vaccine will give, the flu vaccine will give you COVID really damaging. It, it minimizes flu vaccination and COVID vaccination all at once. Somebody says that you should shut the interview down at that point and stop and be ready, ideally because you're prepared to say that's not consistent with what the CDC says and pop up the CDC guideline. So that, I mean, there, there, there need to be three or four, you know, just, it's, it's not a big range of consequential deceptions, but the ones that are there, when somebody says, there's no evidence that masks don't work. And you, know, I, you hear this routinely on one major cable news channel, no evidence, but you need to have that journalist be able to say, let me tell you about the study that was conducted when there was a mask mandate where all the clients in a beauty salon had to wear a mask. And two of the people who were, the, the people taking care of the women in the beauty salon, men in the beauty salon had to wear masks. It turned out two of the people who were doing hair, the, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what their name is, but you know, the, you, you know what I mean, the people are cutting hair, et cetera, stylists had COVID. They didn't know it. They had their masks on. They saw over a hundred clients. Now think of how close you are when you're getting your hair cut. They communicated no COVID to their patients, zero. Their families all got COVID. Published scientific research, CDC verified. So when somebody says masks don't work, say, well, how do you explain that? So all you need to do is to arm the journalist with that study and have the journalist go through in her head enough times that you're ready to deploy it. And now you hear that study, you say, oh, I know how close the stylist is to me when I get my hair cut. That's at least 15 minutes. And the people were, were with the stylist at least 15 minutes. That's the other thing. And nobody got COVID? Well, that's a pretty persuasive study. And you're not in the abstract world of all of the studies that looked at counties that, that had mask wearing and didn't and controlled and showed the difference was counties that had mask wearing had lower rates of COVID. I mean, all that, that's harder to explain. This one, you can say, oh, I've experienced that. You mean they didn't get COVID, but their families got COVID? So you know, now you've gotten rid of the mask denier. And you don't need to summarize all the literature. And you haven't said CDC says, because your audience you know, might not trust CDC. Now, what you want to say after that study is, and the CDC says, and Dr. Fauci says, because you want to build a deeper base. But in a world in which people don't trust institutionalized authorities, the first place to start is explaining evidence, if you can. And so as, as they, clearly then as part of that, you need to be prepared. You need to know You need to know these are the most likely falsehoods that yep. might be articulated. And you have the graphics ready. You have the data to hand. You have a producer in your ear who's ready to kind of um, spot and help you identify some of these things. You, you said print is different. So do you want to say a little bit about how how, how print could perhaps handle handle these complexities? Yeah, print has time to go check the experts. 
So, you know, you're, you're interviewing me, you're, you're looking to quote me, I say something, you know, you, you write it down. Um, now you're putting your story together, you, you, you put it in and somebody says, how does she know that? I mean, you know, decent journalistic outlet, somebody says, how does she know that? You, know, you, you haven't marked that off, you're treating that as if it's factual. You know, go back to her and get a citation. You know, here we go, talk to the experts, we've got an expert, you know, is she wrong? And if it's a political leader, you need to call it out because that person is trafficking misinformation so that you're not, not by not saying it's problematic, tacitly saying it must be accurate. So I, I think of this in, in print is the good print outlets have protections in place so the journalist doesn't inadvertently make a mistake and they have time. Now, increasingly, we don't. Increasingly, people are just posting. But in a real journalistic structure, that protection is there, which is part of the reason mainstream doesn't make those kinds of mistakes very often. And when it does, it gets corrections up really quickly. But I think of the, the broadcast and cable as the producer in your ear. The, the, the journalist has to be knowledgeable enough to carry the explanation. But the producer in your ear is the one who's supposed to say, you know, Damien, that's wrong. Say something. Meantime, you know, pop something for you. And I, I'd like to think of pre prevention as, as preemptive so that you, this, the science community says, okay, we're worried about these three or four because they're out there. And you know, let's just take a half hour on the time of everybody before they go on air. Let's quickly review what we've got here. Producer, what do you have ready to be teed up? And I'm gonna show some journalists tonight, by the way, on air who did a pretty good job. I mean, uh, I, my, my presentation tonight is not just, here's what you could do journalists. There's some journalists who did a pretty good job. I mean, impressively good job under the circumstances. That's great. Um, well, I, I guess also, you know, another part of that equation, of course, that uh, is the consumers who just bypass journalism altogether or yeah. who who are consuming content. We talked about this right at the start that is dressed up as journalism, but is opinion. Yeah. Um, so what should we as as consumers of information be doing differently when we are uh, looking at social media, what do the platforms need to perhaps be, be doing that maybe they they are not? Um, are there particular things you'd like to see the platforms doing it? And conversely, you know, I think it's very easy for us to lay the blame at the door of Silicon Valley. I think as consumers, we also have to take responsibility for our own information diet as well. Yeah. So I'd love to kind of think about uh, those two elements as we start to bring this conversation to a close. The, the platforms are blocking inaccurate information about consequential health issues concerning vaccination. They did it at near the end of the measles outbreak too. So they, they, they started to say, look, we've got some obligations here just to not let that stuff get up there. So the problem of course is that they're, they're managing so much content, finding it quickly enough to get it blocked before it has an impact you know, can be difficult. Secondly, the people who are posting and have and runs around the blocks so it reappears in another guise someplace else. So it's a little like playing whack-a-mole. So I'm sympathetic to the problem of the, of the platforms. Uh, the second thing the platforms are doing is uh, they're on the consequential health items. And in, in many cases, the consequential political items, uh, they have a fact-checking consortium and we're part of it, factcheck.org is part of it. Uh, they, in which if you search for the misinformation, you'll get on the right rail a fact check. And they say that when you when that happens, 90% of the time, people will open the fact check and not go on to read the misinformation. Now, I don't know whether that is true across time in all instances, uh, and it's not something that we've replicated, but at least then you've got the option to be exposed to the corrective information before you're exposed to the misinformation. Once you lay down the memory traces of the misinformation, it's harder to get them uprooted. So it's better to get your context down first if you possibly can. The other thing that they're doing in part responding to the Russian interventions in, in 2016, um, on YouTube, they're labeling videos from foreign nationals by identifying the source. And you know, I mentioned that in the earlier lecture, there should be more of that kind of labeling for legitimacy, not just for illegitimacy. So you know, something that is the CDC, the National Institutes of Health, you know, sources that are legitimate custodians of knowledge First should be you know, up, upgraded, increase the likelihood you get exposure to these things. The bad stuff should be downgraded if they're not gonna block it entirely. Uh, but we need to have something that increases the likelihood that we've made them as attractive as possible. So you know, when, when you're moving quickly on the web 
anything that's a, an, an, orient, an orienting signal um, that pops something where you know, something blinks will attract your attention. I'd like to have that right rail have a little star that kind of blinks at you. I'd like to have, I'd like to use all the things that we know about information capacity uh, to move people over to get the good. Um, I'd like to have something that gives you reinforcement when it's positive information from CDC, NIH. I'd like to take everything we know about how you reinforce to get you to stay on channel to buy products, to stay on channel to keep reading the CDC and NIH to get to the bottom of the page. So I think we can learn from what the platforms have done in order to sustain attention to commercialize us, to sustain attention to benefit health. So uh, be using some of those tools like eye tracking technology yeah. and gamification yeah. techniques and so forth and yeah. applying those principles here. Yeah, this needs to be all hands on deck. Yeah. I mean, they, they, we are in a pandemic. People are dying. Um, and to, to the credit of the scientific community, I mean, we, you know, I won't be here 50 years from now, but I, I lived through the polio epidemic. And the polio epidemic for my generation, I was a young child during the polio epidemic. Science came through for us in the polio epidemic. But I had, I had classmates who were in iron lungs. I had classmates who for the rest of their life experienced the effects of having had polio. So there was a vivid reminder that you know, they didn't get it there fast enough to save them from those kinds of tragedies. We're going to look back on this time either as a huge triumph for science or one in which our political system failed to let the science get to people in efficient ways to do its job as quickly as possible. Now, those can both be true. Science came through for us and our political system failed us. Um, but I would like the memory to be we quickly corrected when we figured out we hadn't gotten the vaccines out properly and we got them into arms and we quashed this thing. And now it's a routine like the cold, a common cold, because that would be a story at a time in which the country desperately needs good news that we could tell each other about expertise that one can trust, science, about institutions capable of delivering. There's real doubt about our political system right now. And in both of those, reinforcing those understandings and expectations of government and science would be very healthy. Great. Well, there's, there's so much more we could have talked about, but I'm very conscious of, uh, of time. So um, I'm just going to draw this uh, discussion to a close now. Uh, I hope you've uh, enjoyed this conversation. Yes, I've been talking with you. Uh, remember, listeners, that you can access talks from the Demystify Media Archive wherever you found this podcast, as well as TV studio interviews and guest lectures via our website, demystifying.uoregon.edu. In the meantime, it just remains for me to thank my guest today, Dr. Kathleen Hall-Jameson. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not check out another from the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication. The Listener's Podcast is a show about the craft and power of listening. We talk with media and communication experts, thought leaders, doers and innovators whose ideas can amplify the quality of our dialogue and interactions. Subscribe to the show anywhere where you find your other favourite podcasts and visit listenerspodcast.com to go deeper with each of our episode's show notes. Thanks for listening.